The word of God from 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And would you all remain standing for just one more minute and pray with me before we begin? Our Father in heaven, we live in a complex, painful, and uh, disappointing world. And it can feel dark sometimes, lonely, and uh, even depressing. So we need your light to help us, to guide us, to comfort us, and give us hope. So we invite your presence to be known and felt by us today because we need you and we're lost without you and we want to be found by you. We ask that these ancient words would remind us of your faithfulness, your constant love, and your relentless commitment to us. Reclaim us once again from the darkness of our world and the blindness we impose on ourselves. Heal us of our desperate need to control our lives and make our hearts open so we can receive your gifts and rest in your presence. We ask for your help in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. If we haven't met yet, hi. My name is uh, Ty. Uh, I'm a pastoral resident here at Denver Prez. And uh, if you're new with us today, I just want you to know that, like, you are my hero. Like, you're my hero. Showing up to a Sunday gathering where you might not know anyone can be really intimidating. Um, But I'm just going to assume that if you're here and you can't really explain why, because you're not really into the whole Jesus thing yet, it's because God wants you to belong to him. He wants you to be included in his family. Maybe even this crazy but amazing family we call Denver Prez. And we're more than happy to welcome you in. So I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes to ask the big questions about life. Um, But the scriptures, the scriptures are filled with profound reflections about living in God's good world after everything has gone wrong. Okay, the biblical authors write histories, narratives, poems, letters, essays, and even uh, apocalyptic literature to make sense of their lives in a disorienting and disappointing world that also belongs to God. Okay, because they had this, they had this paradoxical experience of vulnerability and fear on the one hand, and yet persistent hope and joy on the other. But how can they exist at the same time, right? Why do they exist at the same time? What do I do when my life is filled with pain and loss? What should I think about myself and about God 
when I suffer. So a God of love and a world of suffering. It's, this is an existential dilemma that every major world religion has to deal with. You know, even the religious nuns, you know, that we live next to have to have an answer if they want to be taken seriously. So many people are asking the question, so what are some possible responses? For us, you know, modern Western Denverites, I think there are at least three options that are available to us. So first of all, first of all, you could try to um, numb yourself to the pain, right? Whether it's through entertainment, sex, drugs, recreation, family, or even climbing the corporate ladder. We all try to avoid pain in some way. Uh, you could say this is, the, this is the capitalist solution to suffering, right? Just work hard so you can play harder, right? Or, or you could callously accept your fate. You know, you could embrace a kind of uh, a warrior ethic that would give you the courage to acknowledge the inherent meaninglessness of life. And when you do that, you then give yourself permission to live in total freedom by fulfilling every desire that you have. And nobody would dare stop you because you only live once, right? This is the, this is the yellow option. It's the yellow option. Or, or you could seek transcendence from your pain, right? Escaping to this pain-free realm of pure consciousness where our individual selves merge with the one true self. Right? This is the new age option. Uh, detach your body from deceptive sense experiences because it's not, it's not real. The world is just a trap. So those are the three major options I run into on almost a daily basis. Avoid or numb the pain, callously accept it, or try to transcend it. First Peter, though, First Peter offers us an alternative through the way of Jesus. Right? Because Jesus not only knew and experienced the love of God, but physically embodied it and shared it with others. And yet, he also eventually became the victim of state-sanctioned violence and death. So he was completely faithful to God, chosen to be God's servant and representative on earth, and yet his faithfulness was rewarded with suffering. So the, the paradoxical claim about Jesus' life is that his ugly, shameful, painful death is actually the greatest act of love imaginable, which means it's not suffering or love, it's suffering and love. And that's, that's why Peter wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to help a Jesus community not only endure their pain, but to help them actually immerse themselves in it in order to glean a divine insight about their wounds. Because if you resist suffering, then you'll miss its counterintuitive point. But if you can withstand it, then suffering becomes a strange gift that dissolves the power of false hopes. Right? That, that's the point of this text. Suffering is a strange gift that dissolves the power of false hopes. So Peter does uh, two things to help us embrace this gift. So first of all, he, he coronates us with a royal identity. Okay? And then he summons us to a refugee spirituality. 
So I know it might seem like rather contradictory to be both royalty and a refugee at the same time. But like that's a point, right? Peter identifies us with all of the displaced and marginalized people throughout history. So he can give us a passport to a home that we've actually never been to. And then that's what helps us to be dissatisfied with the empty promises of the world, right? When our longing for home is stronger than our longing for the American dream or for political power or even for economic stability, then you can faithfully endure suffering because our reunion with Jesus is almost here. And our homecoming will be the most intensely satisfying moment of your life. So I want to explore this text to rediscover our identities as royal refugees. Royal refugees who live between not just a God of love and a world of suffering, but a God of love, a world of suffering, and the coming new creation party where every tear will be wiped away, death will be defeated, Crying, sorrow, and pain will be no more because the former things have passed away and Jesus sits on the throne to make all things new. So let's, let's do that, first of all, by rediscovering our royal identity. So in first, verse 9, Peter says this, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. So if you're an avid reader of the Old Testament, then these four descriptions are very familiar to you because they're the identity markers of the people of Israel. So after God miraculously freed his people from slavery in Egypt, God says this in Exodus 9, 15 through 6. Now, if you fully, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So we get three out of the four uh, hits in this verse alone. And then the image of Israel being a a chosen race is kind of a creative merging of Exodus 4.22 and then Hosea 11.1 and other Old Testament verses which say something like, Israel is my firstborn son or Out of Egypt, I called my son. So here's the interesting part. Here's the interesting part. Peter is writing to persecuted Gentile Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So the claim here is that the very definition and even borders of Israel have suddenly expanded. Right? The people of God are no longer concentrated into one family and into one tribe. Instead, every family of the earth can belong to the risen Jesus. And just like Israel represented God to the surrounding nations under the old covenant, all of us can now become his royal representatives to our neighbors, which means, which means our royal identity is about bearing witness to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through Jesus. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Our identity isn't recognized by the powers that be. So we are children of the kingdom of light, like it says in verse 10, and yet the kingdom of darkness suppresses and represses us. 
So our royalty is real, but for the time being, we wear a temporary disguise and blend in until our royal status is revealed. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.19, all of creation groans until we're revealed as the sons of God. So in other words, we know who we are and who we belong to and what God is preparing for us when the new creation arrives. But our circumstances often make it look like we're not actually God's children. At times, it might even look like God has abandoned his family. So this is why Peter gives us the purpose of our disguised royal identity in the second half of verse 9. It's been given to us that we would declare the excellencies of him, which means our identity is an opportunity, opportunity not only to live like we belong to an alternate kingdom, but to pledge allegiance to the king of the coming new creation. And Jesus is quite the counterintuitive king, right? He isn't a king who allies with the rich and powerful to consolidate his power. He doesn't aggressively assert himself out of fear of disloyalty or defection. And he doesn't resort to violence to maintain control and dominance. Jesus is a king who gives mercy to rebellious citizens. A king who blesses the most helpless and unwanted people in society. And that's the excellency that we're supposed to proclaim. The endless mercy and generosity of a king who transformed rivals into friends, slaves into heirs, and orphans into adopted children. Or to use Peter's words in verse 10, God turned us from not God's people into God's people. If you think about it, uh, mercy is what enabled us to belong to God in the first place. Like a caring father who accepts his children, whether or not they reciprocate his love, right? God was motivated by mercy to embrace us even when we resisted him, right? God didn't wait for us to find him. God went out of his way to find us until our stubborn defiance faded into loving surrender. So Jesus' mercy is scandalous because he gave up his life for us while we still opposed him. He was a peace offering for reluctant and repeat offenders like you and me, Because only that act of divine love could convince us of God's overwhelming patience, compassion, and kindness to us. So when we announce his mercy, it's a reminder that this is not our true home. This is not our true home. The new creation is the home we've never been to, but can't wait to arrive at because our citizenship there is a gift from God's abundant mercy. So bearing witness to Jesus's excellent mercy is how we faithfully represent God to the world. It's how we lean in to our royal identity as we live between a God of love, a world of suffering, and our coming new creation party. But how does, this, how does this identity shape our spirituality? So I want you to notice, first of all, that, that Peter's summons to a refugee spirituality is connected with our identity. He says in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or in my words, I urge you as refugees, 
as those who do not live in their rightful homeland. Two, on the one hand, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Right, that's a negative command. But then there's a positive command in verse 12 to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Okay, and verse 12 also gives us an example of the kind of dishonorable actions Gentiles commonly engage in when it says they speak evil against you as evildoers. So here's what I think Peter is saying. A specific passion of the flesh Peter wants us to refrain from is speaking evil against others. Right? That's the that's a primary way you not only preserve your character and integrity, but how you actually represent Jesus to others, even when they might harass you for your commitment to him. In other words, the call here is to, to not retaliate, right? Don't do to them what they do to you, especially when what they do to you is verbally ab- abusive. Because if you respond to their attacks with even more cruel and hostile words, then you'll not only ruin their heart and your soul at the same time, but you'll also, you also damage Jesus' reputation. You know, we all, we all know what it's like to, to weaponize our words, Right, to get defensive and lawyer up so you get hurt the least in a heated moment. You know, maybe you're good at it. Maybe you're the one to light the fire against your spouse, you know, child, parent, sibling, colleague, friend, whoever, right? Because you know exactly what to say to get them going. Or maybe you don't like lighting the fire, but you're definitely not afraid to pour some gasoline over it until the relationship burns to the ground. Right? You didn't start it, but you'll end it so you're the one who comes out on top at the end. You know, we've all seen long and beautiful relationships and all too quickly because of verbal abuse. And once the retaliation machine gets started, it can be nearly impossible to de-escalate the situation, right? let alone turn back, because it's too late. Right? It's just there, out in the open, and everybody has been hurt. So think about what this means. Think about what this means. Imitating verbal violence lets evil shape you into its own image, which means you're actually unraveling your spiritual formation after the image of Christ when you give in to the impulse to retaliate. That's why Peter says it's better to let the hurt stay with you than passing it on, because you're protesting and even limiting the recreation of sin and death in the world when you deny yourself revenge. You know, I don't know if you normally think about it in that way, but denying yourself revenge protests and limits the recreation of sin and death in the world. That's why Peter says in verse 12, if you can suspend the urge to retaliate, your good deeds will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is, this is an important qualification. Peter doesn't say you will be immediately rewarded if you refuse to retaliate. He says this will happen on the day of visitation, when the Lord recom- uh, returns to make all things new. Until then, though, like there's no guarantee, right? Which means the people who want to speak evil against you might continue to do so. Right, with, without justification, without evidence, and often without constraint. 
You and I both know there are people out there who will tear you down just because you exist, right? And unfortunately, non-retaliation doesn't necessarily stop the pain. So I think it's important to say here that non-retaliation doesn't mean you become a helpless doormat, right? If you or someone you know is in a seriously toxic relationship, non-retaliation doesn't stop you from getting help and staying somewhere safe, right? It doesn't, it doesn't stop you from defending yourself. It doesn't even stop you from taking legal action if something like that were necessary. And if that really is you or somebody that you know, like, I just want you to hear that our, our church community will protect you, right? Our pastors and elders will advocate for you. We will not stand by and let you go through this alone. Like, we are here for you. We're here for you. But Peter, Peter is addressing a minority Jesus community dispersed throughout the Roman Empire um, who are facing waves of local persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus, right? They've become an object of contempt in their society because they honor their marriages exclusively with their bodies. They unashamedly commit themselves to the poor and to the oppressed, and they deny loyalty to the Roman gods. So they suffer for their faith, not for the sake of suffering. So here's the question. Why is the primary practice of a refugee spirituality resisting retaliation and especially verbal violence? So I want you to listen to Mark uh, 15, 55 through 65. It's a bit long. But just uh, hang in there with me. Mark says this. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, we'll build another, not made with human hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And here's the key. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. So do you know who followed Jesus that night? as he faced false allegation after false allegation and yet refused to name an enemy? Peter, right? Peter was there that night when Jesus underwent three different illegal trials and still denied himself the right to name an enemy, to incriminate his accusers. Peter was listening outside the halls, standing by the fire, warming his hands, Right? Peter remembers this night, and just in case he forgot, his traveling companion, Mark, wrote about it and circulated his failures. So non-retaliation is on Peter's mind because that's what Jesus did in the final moments of his life. We're warned against revenge because Jesus didn't defeat evil by going to war with it. Jesus conquered sin and death itself by letting it overwhelm him, right? He absorbed humanity's curse into his body and buried it in the grave so we wouldn't have to carry its debilitating weight anymore. 
So by, n- by not retaliating, even when it meant suffering, undeserved pain, and the most publicly shameful of deaths, right, Jesus secured our freedom from sin and death. This is why, this is why forgiveness just has to be at the center of a refugee community who follows Jesus. Because forgiveness is the opposite of retaliation. Forgiveness is not just about maintain a health, maintaining a healthy Christian lifestyle, though that's true. Right? Forgiveness is the very embodiment of the Christian story. It's how we represent Jesus to the world because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts even, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So forgiving others is really a sign that you, that you belong to Jesus because nobody, nobody has ever radically committed to forgiveness the way that he did. Right? Jesus forgave through his own self-donation on the cross. So if you feel like your heart is torn in two or maybe you're just a little more on edge than usual or just like you haven't been a very good Christian lately, you know, then I, I invite you to practice the way of Jesus uh, more deeply through forgiveness. And I don't mean to sound judgy or like I'm trying to opus, oversimplify the complexities of life when I say that. I just think that often, like, we feel like God is distant when we suffer. But the thing is, like, the early Jesus movement thought God was nearer to them when their neighbors were mistreating them. Because they saw those moments as a, as a strange but d- divine gift to embody the good news about Jesus with people who didn't care or even try to understand their religious convictions, right? And that kind of commitment can only make sense when you've been captivated by God's radical, generous, and permanent forgiveness offered to you and your misguided neighbors through the non-retaliating life and death of Jesus. This is why Peter says in the very next paragraph, this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Because suffering, especially the patient suffering of injustice, is a window into God's abundant love, which extends even and especially to those who have opposed God. People like you and me, right? So a God of love in a world of suffering. You know, I hope, I hope the way of Jesus, as strange and counterintuitive as it is, becomes more beautiful and compelling to you. Right? Because numbing the pain won't last long. You'll always need stronger and stronger intoxicants. And I wouldn't want you to miss out on the good things of life just because you're hurt by the hard things. And growing calluses against the pain won't work either. Right? You'll end up distant and cold to the people you love the most if you harden yourself out of weariness to pain. And I know, you, I know you don't want that. And honestly, trying to transcend the pain is just unrealistic. Right? We're made for this world and for each other. Escape might actually mean more loneliness and more detachment at the end of the day. You and I were found and healed and remade by the paradoxical suffering love of God. 
right? I hope, I hope that resonates with you. I mean, I wish I could tell you God doesn't want you to suffer. You know, I really do. I really wish I could tell my own wife and daughter that God doesn't want them to suffer, but I can't. I don't know what God has for them, right? And I don't know what God has for you either. But I do know that whatever your circumstances might be, pain and loss does not mean God has given up on you, right? The royal identity you have through the risen Jesus is irreversible. It's a passport. Others will try to convince you just does not exist, but it's precisely the passport you need to get home, right? And together, our refugee spirituality, especially the practice of forgiveness, can shape our longing for that homecoming while we wait. So to close our time, I want to read you another small part of a spoken word that I think really captures everything I've tried to say to help us embrace the strange gift of suffering um, so all of our false hopes would dissolve. And so our lasting hope in Jesus and the new creation would deepen. So here's the spoken word. Faith, it doesn't eliminate trouble or mistakes, but it accelerates the healing, revealing God can circumvent the time that it takes to understand that you have never, ever been a mistake. I am not the sum of my past because I have been redeemed. I am not what I've done to others, nor am I what's been done to me, and neither are you. But just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so does the Son give life to whom he pleases to give it to. And that's you. The Son is Jesus Christ, and he's the answer to every question and every vice that has ever plagued my life. He keeps telling me, Beloved, in you, I am doing something new. Don't you see it? It springs forth like rivers abounding with good fruit. Though you suffer many things, my streams will clean the depravity from you. So hold on just a little longer until I come to make all things new. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word from Peter. Thank you for this certain identity that we have in the risen Jesus, this royal identity that reminds us that we are your children that we belong to you, and we're supposed to represent you to the world. And thank you for this practice of refugee spirituality, which will remind us of home and shape our longings for the new creation and to be reunited with you. I pray that you would help us in the midst of our suffering um, to, divine, to glean divine insights about our wounds, to always know that our suffering does not mean that we've been abandoned by you but instead that's a sign that you're preparing us for the new creation. So help us um, to dissolve the power of false hopes in our lives and help us to deepen um, in our steadfast commitment to the new creation. We ask for your help in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.